But welcome to Potomac Hills and the Lord's service. Let's all rise up as we sing our praises to the Lord. to you all. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. Um, are we live streaming today? We are live streaming. So all those people out on the interwebs, hi, welcome to service. Um, glad you could join us today. Um, I will note the camera adds like five pounds, so there's like three cameras on me right now, I think. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm John Palme. I'm one of the deacons here at uh, Potomac Hills. Um, and we're very happy that you're here and we're if you're new, we'd love to, to meet with you um, after church, uh, outside, obviously, uh, social distancing. Um, but we're glad you're, you're joining us here to worship and uh, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, I'd also like to note as the, as the deacons uh, that during this time of struggle throughout the, our country and the world, uh, we're here to serve you as the deacons. And uh, we really want you to reach out to any of us uh, for any needs that you might possibly have to see what we can, uh, how, how we can help you. Uh, we are the deacons, and we're here to help. Um, 
just one note, obviously, let's, we have to keep our masks on, except for the, the music team, our very small music team today. Thank you, Claire and Tom. Um, and then when the service is over, uh, we'll be uh, sitting down and then being dismissed in sections. Um, so we'll take care of that at the end, uh, after the benedictions. Uh, for the announcements, um, you can look at the weekly email from Dave, Frank, or Andrea for uh, the events going regarding our community groups and uh, Bible studies and youth groups, et cetera. Uh, in this chaotic world, everything's changing constantly, so uh, please take a look each week to see what the latest uh, is going on uh, in, in that regard. Uh, lastly, we are seeking uh, volunteers for the sound table. Um, if anyone else feels um, led to help uh, serve your church, we, we would really love to have you uh, on there. Um, we're, we're down to only about three or four people doing that, and it's a pretty, pretty frequent rotation for them. So uh, let's get started with our service. The first thing we have is our responsive call to worship from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 11. Uh, I'll be the leader, and um, you'll be the congregation or the people. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. But those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that we, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we can come here today and freely worship you, a luxury that many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world do not have. Incline our ears, our hearts, and our minds to you and help draw us closer to you and your word. Thank you for the sacrificial gift of your son, Jesus, whose death on the cross allows us to approach your throne safe in the knowledge that the price of our sins has been paid in full by him. Please send your Holy Spirit to us today, who gives us the power to worship him in truth and in spirit. I ask this all in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, please stand. We're going to continue to worship our Lord in uh, song. Uh, real, real quick, um, John mentioned Claire and I were singing. He didn't mention the third member of the music team, which is uh, my iPhone. Uh, that's what's providing the piano today. So here's a quick plug, since we're looking for volunteers for soundboard and things like that. If anybody wants to join the music team, uh, we're looking for instrumentalists. We'll pretty much take anybody, as long as it's not like the whiskey jug or something like that that you play, um, and maybe even, even that, as long as it's empty. Um, but please, uh, please contact me if you play piano, guitar, uh, anything like that, want to sing, uh, it'd be great to have you. So we're thankful for technology uh, made set up a lot quicker 
but we'd love to have uh, more live musicians. So uh, with that said, our next song, um, if you had been following the video worship before we came back to live worship, this is a song we introduced around Easter and we actually sang twice. So I'm hoping people are familiar with it, but if, if not, you'll catch on pretty quick. It's a great song, uh, one of the authors of which was a former student of uh, Dr. Silvernail. So um, I know he likes this song. So uh, let's, let's sing to the Lord. Christ, our hope in life and death.
Oh. 
So as we've been doing uh, throughout this last few weeks, um, we're going to be uh, doing a, uh, a corporate uh, prayer time, um, and um, we have some uh, some responsive readings, and then um, we'll uh, say some of them together, uh, and some of them I will say, and then at the end uh, we'll silently confess our sins, and then uh, we'll have a, a, a verbal uh, confession, and then um, you'll receive a... Uh, um, assurance of pardon. So uh, we have it up on the screen, I believe. Um, so uh, in the bold, we'll, we'll all stay together and uh, I will do the part not bolded. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have forgotten you. Ask of me, and will I will the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Save the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Wrath is quickly hand-kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Saving God, who has promised that you would be with your people to the end of the world, we pray on behalf of your church globally, this congregation, and for our sister PCA churches in Northern Virginia. Inhabit and bless the worship services in person and online of New Hope PCA in Fairfax City and Spriggs Road PCA in Manassas. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, other gods compete with you for the allegiance of our hearts. We nurse resentment toward people who have wronged us 
and sometimes toward you. It is these things that keep us from knowing the joy of your presence and the peace of your protection. Help us remove them and fill our hearts with your joy. Lord, hear our prayer. Majestic God, how is it possible that we fill your mind? You love and care for us so much you are willing to become a weak infant and vulnerable child, all in order to save us. Now help us in our daily interactions to treat every person we meet as a being infinitely precious in your sight. Lord, hear our prayer. O Lord, we know that your love is unfailing even if we don't feel it, but we ask that in your grace you touch us and give us a sense of your presence at our side. Lord, hear our prayer. O God, all of our spoken and unspoken requests we present to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Uh, please take a moment to silently confess your sins. Let's pray. O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Forgive us, Lord, for how we have corrupted your good creation. Gracious Lord, you alone are righteous and holy, and in your presence no one can stand. Your gracious mercy is our only hope, and we ask for your forgiveness. We pray for your cleansing touch to wash away our corruption, clothe us in righteousness, and for your hands to rework our lives anew. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Receive the assurance of pardon from Ezekiel chapter 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Amen. Normally at this time we would uh, take our offerings. I just want to remind everybody that there are offering boxes in the back that you can drop your offering in and it's COVID free and all that stuff. And if you're watching online, of course, uh, you can certainly send your, your offerings to the church office. But um, let's rise as we sing our uh, hymn of praise to the Lord. Um, he's with us in times of trouble and stress, and he's our assurance. So this is the fourth verse of Be Still My Soul.
Children can meet in the lobby for Children's Church. Get hooked up here with my many microphones. As they're going out and getting ready for Children's Church, let me remind you, uh, somebody asked me earlier, they missed having the bulletin inserts um, for the sermon notes, and we do put those online on the website, so you're able to get those, print them off, and bring them with you if you want them, and for those at home, well, you can just go ahead and print it off or follow along on your screen. Well, today we've come to one of the more difficult passages in the Bible. Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read it. It's long and it's strange. So, and you'll know as soon as we start going through it. But I encourage you to listen. Uh, we don't skip any passages uh, because this is God's word and he has something to teach us through it. So Mark chapter 13. As always, please listen carefully. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. 
And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand this difficult passage. It's filled with images we can't see, warnings we can't fathom, prophecies we just don't get. So help us to consider what these words have to teach us about following Christ. Help us to hear your word, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, it's been a tough time lately, hasn't it? There's been a tremendous amount of suffering and loss in our world and in our church. Most obviously, we've lost one of our ruling elders, John Thompson, that's been felt deeply by many in the church. It's been overwhelming for his family. Please keep them in your prayers. They're going to have a private graveside service for just the family, but perhaps we'll be able to have another service down the road when the whole COVID pandemic subsides. Others of you have suffered job losses, reduced hours, changed schedules, the whole on-again, off-again distance learning debacle for students and teachers. Some of you have suffered relational breakdowns and domestic strife. Many of us are emotionally spent, socially deprived, and spiritually drained. And almost all of us are just plain tired. And then there's the nightly news of protests and counter-protests, violence in the streets, and rumors of wars. 
Cancel culture is out of control. People are pulling down statues of those they actually agree with. Liberal editors are being forced out of major media organizations for being too conservative. One business leader was forced to resign from a Fortune 500 company for something he wrote 28 years ago, as if no one has changed any of their views in the last 28 years. And on top of all that, there's the persistent drumbeat of constant COVID confusion. Wear masks, don't wear masks. Go out, don't go out. We'll have a vaccine soon, but maybe not for a while. So many people don't know what to believe anymore that they stop believing anything at all. We live in a time of great confusion. But the reality is that's nothing new. The first century church lived in a time of great confusion. They were persecuted, scattered, and tested in a variety of ways. They were trying to understand the scriptures, and they weren't sure if the end times, or the last days as Jesus called them, was something that was going to happen right away, or not for a long time. And things became so difficult for them, they looked forward to Jesus' return with great anticipation. And part of the problem, both then and now, is that Jesus spoke of the end times a great deal. And for the past 2,000 years, we haven't been able to agree on exactly what he meant. Is he coming back to establish his reign on earth? Or is he waiting until everyone is saved first? Or are we actually living under his reign right now? Are we getting to leave this place before the real suffering starts? or in the middle of the suffering, or is the suffering part and parcel of what Christians have to live with? Will the suffering be specifically targeted towards Christians, or is it going to hit everybody, or is it something of a both-and situation? There are lots and lots and lots of questions, and not a lot of real clear answers, at least not a lot that everyone agrees on. So we're not only living in a time of great confusion, this morning, we're taking on a subject of great confusion. And yet, God put this text here for a reason, and it's supposed to have some effect on what we believe and how we live. So let's turn again to Mark 13 and see what's going on. We've come to a new section of the book of Mark. <clears throat> this is the longest of Jesus' sermons uh, that Mark records. And the teaching in this sermon has reference to events that would transpire shortly after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, within about 30 years, about 30, 40 years. But it also has reference to events that still await fulfillment, including the second coming of Christ. And so, while this passage is prophetic, it has both near-term fulfillment and far-term fulfillment. It's all about the end times, to use the technical term, eschatology, which simply means the study of end times. Now, when you mention that word, eschatology, it stirs some interesting reactions from otherwise intelligent people. Some immediately think of the rather bizarre literature that's available on the subject of the end times. I'm not going to get into all that right now, but I encourage you to stay away. Um, perhaps you've read some of that. Maybe when you think of eschatology or the end times, you think of the fact that many good, uh, faithful teachers of the word, 
have differences on all how this is uh, going to work out. Perhaps that leads you to think that if the theologians can't figure it out, maybe we're better off just not talking about it at all. However, that's a big mistake for several reasons. First, a significant portion of the New Testament is taken up with teaching on the end times. Jesus, Paul, and some of the other apostles repeatedly addressed issues connected with prophecy and end times. Second, the lion's share of New Testament teaching about the end times, about the way the Lord's going to return, is actually <clears throat> plain and simple. It's crystal clear. The vast majority of the New Testament teaching on the end times is not hard to understand. And finally, teaching about the end times is directly related to Christian ethics. Or to put it another way, the Bible's teaching about the end times is direct, directly related to the daily life of the Christian. So our understanding of what the New Testament teaches about the end times is very important for living the Christian life. So we're going to look at this text by trying to answer a few questions. First of all, what is going on? And that will lead us to the signs Jesus mentions. Second, when will this take place? And that will lead us to the times Jesus mentions. And third, now what should we do? And that will lead us to the response Jesus expects. So what, when, and now what? Those are the three questions we're taking on this morning. So we'll start with the what question, which leads us to the simplicity of the signs. The simplicity of the signs. <coughs> we start with verse 1. And as Jesus came out of the temple... As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, You see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus has been in the temple. He's been there teaching, answering questions, now, the last thing we saw him witness, the uh, poor widow put her two copper coins in the offering box. And so now him and the disciples are leaving. They're heading for the Mount of Olives. And one of the disciples turns and looks at this magnificent temple. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. And even though I'm sure he's seen that temple many times before, still amazed by it. And so he expresses as much to Jesus. And that brings us to the first sign which is the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple. Mark 13 begins with Jesus telling the disciples that Jerusalem and the temple at some future time are going to be destroyed. Now he talks about the stones. These are huge stones. The building blocks for the temple are enormous. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that some of the stones that made up the temple were 60 feet long, 11 feet high, and 8 feet deep, with each stone weighing more than a million pounds. Think about building this place. I mean, they didn't have cranes. They didn't have machines. A whole lot of people. Closest equivalent that I could think of 
was if you took a railroad boxcar and filled it with sand. It would be about that size, roughly. And turned it on its side. These stones are big. And so what Jesus says next is actually really startling because he's not talking about little stones like you and I might think of. He says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they're looking at these giant stones and it's not registering, it's not computing. So in verse 4, they ask him a question. They say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And because they ask that question, Jesus begins to teach. He actually begins to preach and bring them this sermon. And Jesus says the end of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is actually a foreshadowing of the end of the world. It's a foreshadowing of Judgment Day. It's a foreshadowing of his second coming. So that's the first sign. There's the temple, it's coming down. Then he tells us to beware of false teachers. False teachers. It's an unexpected exhortation. He begins right away in verse 5. Rather than continuing to talk about the temple, he immediately says, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. His first priority is to alert the disciples that this topic of future things would be filled with widespread deception. In what ways? Well, he goes on, verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So the first sign for the impending fulfillment of end times prophecy is the appearance of false teachers. And this definitely had first century fulfillment. Historians tell us that there was all kinds of false teachers and false messiahs appeared before the destruction of the temple. And Josephus documents many of these figures who actually claim to be Christ. And if you've been attending our Sunday school class on First and Second Timothy, then you know that one of Paul's major concerns in those letters is taking on false teachers. So... We are within 20 years of Jesus leaving, and false teachers is one of the major issues the church has to deal with. And of course, there is no shortage of false teachers in our day and age. So Jesus' warning has both a near-term and far-term fulfillment. Then things start getting really difficult, because the next sign is one of tribulation. It's a word you don't actually hear that much outside of the Bible. But it's actually used quite a bit in the Bible. It was actually used in one of the songs that we just sang. Amidst trials and tribulation. And so Jesus lists these signs that affect all people, starting in verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So the disciples that are listening to Jesus, they must have understood wars and rumors of wars as an indication of this coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which would happen at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. No doubt they would pay close attention to all the various conflicts uh, that flared up. But Jesus counsels them when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, 
do not be alarmed. These must take place, but the end is not yet. And he also lists earthquakes and famines as additional signs. Now, history tells us in the lifetimes of most of the disciples, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, all took place. So there's a near-term fulfillment of these things. However, any search of the news will tell you those things didn't end in the first century. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines have continued in every generation. And in fact, have only increased in intensity and severity. Now, some of it, some of the increased uh, severity, the seriousness of these things, is due to the increase in global population. They affect a lot more people, one, because there's a lot more people. But some of that is also due to the commercialization, the capitalism of our global economy that's built cities on fault lines and that's moved food and the distribution of food from being a local matter to a global network, which is why a famine in Argentina affects food prices in Virginia. And we need greater discernment today to understand how worldwide events and disasters affect us, not just materially, but also spiritually. Many evangelicals today have this tendency, I mean, every time a conflict breaks out, there's another sign of the times, Jesus is coming back soon. Earthquakes, famines, national disasters all draw that same kind of attention. And obviously the reason why so many believers watch for these signs is because of what didn't happen in the first century or any century since then. And that's Jesus coming back. And as Jesus continues to set out these signs for the disciples to uh, watch for, he lists the fulfillment of one particular Old Testament prophecy. Mark tells us that he said, verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, that's crystal clear. That phrase, the abomination of desolation, is spoken of by the prophet Daniel and refers to a prophecy that was given to Daniel by the archangel Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9. So this is where you have to know the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. It's clearly a messianic prophecy, but it also speaks of the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem itself. And there are a lot of different opinions as to what this term means, the abomination of desolation. Although there is some general agreement that it refers to some sort of pagan desecration of the temple. And we know that those things have actually happened several times in history. But again, to understand it, we have to think near-term and far-term. So near-term, the conquest of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD surely fulfills Daniel's prophecy. But if you've read the book of Revelation, and if you haven't, I would refer you back to the sermon series I preached on that book, which is on our website. You can go back there and read it, listen to it. Um, but if you have, you know the book of Revelation is actually built on the book of Daniel. And most of the prophecies in Mark 13 are also referred to in Revelation 
as events still to come. So some of these things happen in the first century, and yet some of those things are also mentioned again as still going to happen. And so for all these prophecies, we have to understand some parts were fulfilled then, and they were really bad. And some parts are going to be fulfilled in the future, and they'll be worse. And Jesus alludes to that in verses 15 through 18. He tells everyone upon seeing the abomination of desolation to flee to the mountains. And this is where we find the language bemoaning the fate of those who are pregnant or nursing because it's harder for them to flee. He says, pray it doesn't happen in winter because it's harder to flee. And then, as if tribulation isn't bad enough, Jesus warns of great persecution. Great persecution. He moves on to much more personal signs, not intended for everyone, but particular to Christians. And he begins to tell his disciples about things that would happen to them and how should they respond. And Mark tells us that Jesus said, starting at verse 9, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father's child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, a long time ago, I was coming to Christ. I don't remember anyone telling me about this passage. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Nobody mentioned beatings. Nobody mentioned being hated. Yet Jesus says, this is part of what being a Christian is. You're going to have to deal with persecution. Now, Part of this prophecy leads, reads like an overview of the book of Acts. Much of this happened in the book of Acts. That, that book, remember the author is Luke, and he recounts the spread of the gospel in the first century. And he tells us the apostles were repeatedly subjected to persecution, first by the Jewish authorities and later by Roman authorities. They're taken before councils, you remember, Peter and John were questioned by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. They're beaten in synagogues. In Acts 22, Paul confesses that he himself had beat believers before his conversion. They're brought before rulers and kings, such as when Paul stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26. So there is near-term fulfillment to all of this. But you know that nearly every year, I think we've missed a few years here and there, but nearly every year we have a Pray for the Persecuted Church Sunday. If all this stuff just happened 2,000 years ago, why are we still doing that? Because the persecution of Christians has never been more widespread. And it continues around the world. Perhaps this year it's been most intense in China. As churches in that land have been destroyed by the hundreds pastors imprisoned by the thousands. 
Of course, we get reminded of Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Persecution is normal. Don't be surprised by it. It's not strange. This is what happens to Christians. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus himself warns us about this in John, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's directly from Jesus prior to the crucifixion. He tells him that. Now, I don't have time to cover every single thing mentioned in this text. But we have prophecies about the spread of the gospel, prophecies about family betrayals. They all have near-term and far-term fulfillments. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There's a great deal of truth to that. For where believers have stood firm against opposition to the gospel, the church has flourished. However, it's also true. Not all professing Christians who come under persecutions go to their death singing hymns. There are those throughout history who've caved to the pressure and who've betrayed their professions of faith. Some betrayed friends, parents, brothers, sisters to save their own necks. Simply put, there are those who betrayed the faith in the first century, just as Jesus warned there would be. And it's no different today. My own view, for what it's worth, is it seems to be signaling that prior to the return of Christ, there will be a great apostasy, a turning away from Christ and his gospel. And there's going to be times of great trial and tribulation and suffering. At the same time, many are going to come to Christ, and the church will grow spiritually stronger, if not numerically. And the nominal Christian who sort of has a foot in the church and a foot in the world, is going to be forced to get off the fence and choose once and for all between the church and the world. And I think we're actually seeing that happen around the world today. And then finally we get the good news. It's in here. It's easy to miss over because of all the bad news. But Jesus tells us the most important sign of all is the arrival of the Son of Man. Starting in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's apocalyptic language that speaks of the second coming. We can find it in Daniel, in Ezekiel, in Thessalonians, in Revelation. 
following a period of tribulation, Jesus will return. And he'll return in power and glory. And in all the display of this resplendent divine person, this very essence being emblazoned, as it were, shining forth from his face. It's the second coming of Christ. You can read about it in Revelation 19. It's a great note of triumph that Jesus is coming again, and he's coming again in victory. He's coming again in power. He's coming again in great glory. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It is the great event of human history. But then Jesus tells this weird, short, one-verse parable of a fig tree. And it sort of throws you off guard. He says, in the early spring, when the fig tree blossoms, it's saying summer is coming. Not saying summer is coming in the very next minute, but that summer is coming. You know it's going to happen. You can count on it. Now, here in Virginia, you can get some false starts with summer. But Jesus is saying, be ready, be prepared. It's going to happen, starting at verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lessons. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, <clears throat> I certainly believe that we ought to live our lives not so much with the any-minute return of Jesus in mind, but certainly with the sure and certain hope that there is going to be an impending return of Jesus, that he could return within our lifetimes. And when he does return, it will happen very quickly. However, I'm not sure we actually live our lives like that. I'm not sure how much of the second coming is part of our everyday thinking. But in the Bible, it's a dominating feature of the way the early Christians lived. They lived with the birth of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, and the second coming of Christ on the clouds of heaven ever present in their minds. And the birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ form the perspective, you might say, the worldview by which they lived their lives. Why are we any different? After all, the second coming is a crucial part of the teaching of Christianity. Not only is it in the Apostles' Creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead, it's mentioned 300 times in the New Testament. That's one out of every 13 verses. Jesus mentions it over and over and over again. You read the whole New Testament like as a book. 
And if a repetition of things tells you what's important, then this is going to be one of those things near the top of the list of what's important. And I want to go as far to say that you can't live a recognizably Christian life unless you not only believe this, but you let it affect how you live. Of course, that brings us to the question that everybody actually wants answered. When is this going to happen? The when question brings us to the simplicity of the times. So bottom line up front, we don't know. We don't know when, period. We just don't know. It's disappointing, I know. So let's look at what he actually says, starting at verse 32. <clears throat> but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Underline, circle that phrase. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. <coughs> For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. But what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He starts off by saying, but concerning that day, that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, the day when this world will be brought to its consummation, that day, the date of which is not known even to the angels. It's not even known to the human nature of Jesus himself, but only to the Father, because the Father has given the Son in his human nature that information which is redemptively necessary for him to fulfill his task as our mediator. Now, if Jesus, in his human nature, does not know the date of the second coming, do you think it's even remotely possible that you and I are going to know it? So as soon as you see somebody say, it's going to be this date, and lots of people have said it over the years, that ought to be a red flag. The scripture is clear. We don't know. No one knows. Similarly, any claim to tell from world events when the second coming of Christ is going to occur is a claim to know more than Jesus. Jesus is the reason why people should turn from idolatry and injustice and wickedness. The cross is where the world's sufferings and horrors have been heaped up and dealt with. The resurrection is the launch of God's new creation of his sovereign saving rule on earth, starting with the resurrection of the physical body of Jesus himself. Those events are the summons to repent and the clue to what God is doing in the world. Trying to jump from an earthquake, a tsunami, a pandemic, or anything else to a conclusion about what God is saying here, without going through the gospel story, is to make a basic theological mistake of trying to figure out something about God by going behind Jesus' back. Not going to work. 
So since there's actually not much to say about the when, let's move on to what's really the most important question, at least of this text, which is now what do we do? And that points us to the simplicity of the response. The simplicity of the response. This is the now what question. There was an influential minister of the gospel, an Irish preacher by the name of Alan Flavel. And he once said, we all get anxious and run to God when the foundations are shaking, only to find that he is the one who is shaking them. You ever feel like the foundations are shaking? If not, just turn on the news. Read the front page of virtually any paper. Look up your favorite news app. What do you see? Wars and rumors of wars, signs of judgment, earthquakes, famine, conflict, signs of God having given people over to unrighteousness. So what do we do? How do we respond to all of that? And the answers to that question are actually right here in our text, sort of hidden in plain sight. I listed them for you in the bulletin that you're going to go print out at home. Um, but first of all, the first thing he says, this whole section, do not be led astray. Do not be led astray. We find it back in verses 5 and 6. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. <clears throat> it's mentioned again in verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So the first great danger is that someone or something is going to lead you away from Christ. Like much of what we find in Paul's letters, the great danger to the early church, the great danger to the church today, is false teachers. And unless you know the scriptures, it's hard to know what teachings are false and what teachings are true. Which is why Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the first thing is don't be led astray. Don't listen to the false teachers. Second, and this one's actually kind of hard, do not be alarmed or anxious. Do not be alarmed or anxious. We find this in verses 7 and, and verse 11. Now we live in an age of high anxiety and great fear. And yet Jesus has already told us what's going to happen. He's told us how it's going to end. The most common command in all of the scriptures is do not fear. And that's given to us because Christ has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Now, I don't want to downplay the physical or psychological elements of anxiety. But I want to emphasize that there's a spiritual component involved here as well. And far too often people deal with the physical and the psychological while ignoring the spiritual. And I'm going to argue for a, a wholehearted approach. It's not the right word, but for all three, not just one. But the one at least that I can tell that's most often ignored is the spiritual. So if you suffer from fear or anxiety, especially in these days of the coronavirus, have you turned to the means of grace to help you handle it? I know it sounds way too simple. 
But spending some real time in prayer, some real time in the word, some real time in worship, some real time in fellowshipping with other believers, even at a distance, can go a long way to not letting your fear and anxiety get the best of you. So that's second. Do not be alarmed. Do not be anxious. Third, be on your guard and stay awake. Be on your guard and stay awake. We see this in verses 9, 23, 33, 34, 35, and 37. Six times in this chapter, Jesus exhorts us to be on guard and stay awake. We're to guard against the pressure put on us by persecution. We're to guard against false teachers. We're to guard against thinking that the coming of Christ doesn't matter or that it's the only thing that does. We're to guard against others being led astray by sin, by false teaching, by idolatry, by immorality, by the lack of care and compassion. Most of all, we're to guard the gospel from all these things. We have to guard the work of Christ that's already been done in our lives. It's part of perseverance. It's why Paul tells Timothy, again, in 2 Timothy 1, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I think it was the Reformed theologian A.B. Kuyper, a good Dutchman, who said the condition of the world is getting better and worse at the same time. The gospel is spreading, the church is growing, there are more Christians in the world than ever, but at the same time there is more opposition, there is more hostility, and there is more difficulty. And those two go together. If you learn anything from Mark chapter 13, learn this, there is an end to history. The next great redemptive event is not the Battle of Armageddon. It has nothing to do with the state of Israel. It has nothing to do with Middle Eastern politics. It's not about the implanting of some microchip in your forehead. It's got nothing to do with Iran or China. None of those will be the next great redemptive event. According to the scriptures, the next great redemptive event for disciples of Jesus Christ is the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of time. It's the wrapping up of history. It's the bringing this world to a close and the formation of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus says he's coming back, verse 26, in the clouds. That's important because it points us back to the glory of God in the Old Testament. Frequently when God appeared to his people, it was in the form of a powerful cloud, when God led his people out of Egypt in Exodus 13, when he gave them the law in Exodus 24, when the temple was dedicated in 2 Chronicles 5, there was a glory cloud, a sign that God is coming to dwell with his people, to be with his people, to undo all the terror and pain caused by the fall. Jesus says that his return means the permanent return of the glory of God. It's a promise that all the pain and suffering, trials and tribulations in our lives don't last forever. As Cornelius Plantiga, a Christian philosopher, said, the return of Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. So if your wife just died of cancer, if your marriage dissolved, if you're lonely, if your body is racked by chronic pain, Jesus is saying to you this morning, lift up your eyes. I'm coming back 
and it might be this year, there is reason to hope in the midst of your deepest darkness. As one author put it, the promise of the second coming shows us that the good days are always ahead of us. And that gives us hope. We are to be people of hope. The Bible says hope is an anchor for our soul. And this text tells us that that anchor holds. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, again, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Help us to repent and believe the gospel. Father, we thank you that you have made us to be the temple of your Holy Spirit. We long for the fulfillment of your glorious decrees. We know that our redemption is drawing nearer every day. And we commit our lives to the proclamation of your gospel to all nations through the church. We ask that you would keep us from every false teaching and keep us from rebellion against your word before the return of your son. We know that in you will be held together through that day for your elect will not be led astray to eternal destruction. Your son will come and we will wait for him as we hear your word. Help us to be on guard and stay awake for the sure and certain hope of eternal life in Christ. Because we believe, as always, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. By faith we live for that day to come. Amen. Amen. And as we wait for his coming, we need to have his mind as our mind. So let's rise up and sing, May the mind of Christ our Savior.
remind you that once we're finished, we'll dismiss by sections. Hear the blessing of God from 1 Peter chapter 1. It's long, but it's related to our text today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God bless you. We'll see you next week.